thank you for being a part of our church service today. It is our desire at Riverstone Church that God's Word will work in you to produce an abundant field life. To know more about the ministry or to support, visit riverstonechurch.net. May the Lord bless you today as you listen to this message. This morning we're going to look at a couple of principles of, uh, that Scripture gives us of times that we may find ourselves living in. And as a missionary, I, uh, I have a little story about a, a granddaughter that came with her grandfather to church for the first time. And uh, when they started singing, she said, Granddad, what's that about? And he said, well, we're worshiping God. And then they read the Bible and she said, what's that? And he said, well, we're reading the word of God. Then they prayed, and she said, what's that? He said, well, uh, we're speaking to God. And then the missionary took out his timepiece, and he put it down to watch, and she said, Grandpa, what's that? And he said, nothing, my dear, nothing. (laughs) So I trust that I'm just trying to steady myself a little bit, so as we start, I want to ask a couple of questions. I want to start as Brother Anthony already prayed that that which is God's word will come through to each one of us today. That we do not see a situation but that we hear the heart of God right as we are sitting right now in this church. There are people who are praying for this service. I know that there are people that are interceding for us as we are here right now. So let's take the opportunity to just bow our heads and just focus on God's word that we may hear, that we may receive, that we may focus in such a manner that the Holy Spirit of God, God himself, can speak to us that men and the distractions of the world may be pushed aside and that we may hear, that we may focus in. So let's just pray together. Father, as we open your word, we ask that through the indwelling and the inworking of your Holy Spirit, you would lead, that you would guide, that you would open our hearts and our minds in such a manner that the outside world will not distract us, that the enemy will be banished from here, and that you, O Spirit of God, that you would speak, that we may hear, and more importantly, Lord, that we may respond to your word in such a manner that your name would be glorified. And for that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Question before us this morning is, We've got a lot of bad news coming around us. There's a tremendous amount of bad news that is focusing in in the world, all over the world, not just here, all over the world. Things are happening that are making some people respond in a way of fear, in anger, in frustration, in disappointment. 
some in surrender, saying, well, that's not my responsibility, and stepping away from it. How do we handle bad news, difficult circumstances, and things that are hurtful? Do we jump in and try and correct them? Do we use our connections to try and speak into a situation to alleviate that situation? What is it that we instinctively or mindfully do when we get into a position where bad news comes crashing in on us? Do we wash our hands of it? What do you do when you look and you see on the news that there's been another mass shooting or the collapse of a condo building or a plane crash or 62 million babies aborted unnatural death of a family member the scary situation of the doctor saying it is cancer what do we do with it? I want us to go and look at a situation in the Old Testament. And if anybody starts thinking they know who I'm talking about, I want you to put up your hand so that I can, that I can hear. This is a test for you, not for me. There was a man, a faithful man, who was found, found himself in Babylon in exile when he got some really bad news but he was faithful he was in the king's service come on come on yeah Daniel no sorry it's a different one Daniel is pretty close Nehemiah Nehemiah was the man that I'm wanting us to focus on because Nehemiah has a position in scripture that we need his the, he gets to the point where he understands that the graves are open and when he gets this bad news he sinks down on his knees he prays he weeps he uh, fasts and he mourns the situation that his people are in that's his reaction to the bad news of his day. He prays, he fasts, he mourns the situation. And then he meditates on this, and he has a very specific job. He's the cupbearer to the king. And do you know what the function of a cupbearer to the king was? He was to encourage the king. He was to entertain the king. He had to lift the spirits of the king. There was just one small little problem. If the cupbearer were found to be sad or sullen, what do you think happened to him? He was killed. And here is Nehemiah, and he has just received this terrible news that is breaking his heart. He has a sorrow over the situation back in Jerusalem for a very specific reason. Because his people were unfaithful to God 
and therefore they were swept away to Babylon in exile. Nehemiah knew that he couldn't be sad before the king. The next time he went before the king and he carried the cup to the king, the king noticed that he was not himself. And at that point, when the king says to Nehemiah, what's wrong? Nehemiah realizes that he's in serious trouble. So he does what he always does. He shoots up a little prayer. Dear God, help me. For the king asks him a question. What is your request? After Nehemiah told him that he was sad because of what was happening in Jerusalem, the king comes forward and says to him, what is your request? Again, we read that he sends up a prayer that may just have been, I don't know, none of us know, it may just have been, dear Lord, that may be all the time that he had for it, but he did it. And then he asked to be allowed to go back to Jerusalem. He asked for letters to be presented to the leaders on the places, the parts of the world that he had to go back through. And then something miraculous happened. Incredibly, not only did the king allow him to go back to Jerusalem, not only did the king write the letters that Nehemiah asked for, he actually went a whole lot further. He provided Nehemiah with an escort that would take him because they, they had to travel through dangerous places. He actually sent him some army detail with, with Nehemiah. And he made sure that on the other end, Nehemiah had the instructions for the local leaders to allow him to get all the wood, to get all the materials that he needed. They had to provide it. That was the king's order. That was in response to Nehemiah's prayer that God worked in the heart of a pagan king. I want you to hear that. God can hit a straight shot with a crooked stick. Huh? That's it. God can hit a straight shot with a crooked stick. And we never must forget that. That when we step into a situation as representatives of God on this earth, we may be a crooked stick. But God has the capacity to hit a straight shot. The king's heart was moved by God. And then uh, Nehemiah leaves for Jerusalem. On his way there, he travels and he, he gets there safely. And then for three days he rests. And then he does something that is a little bit out of the ordinary. He does not share his vision, his heart, with the leaders. He waits until the evening, and then he goes and he takes a donkey, he goes out of the gate, and he goes along the wall, 
and he is looking and he's researching what's going on with this wall that has been broken down. He gets to a point where the rubble is so so bad, steep down, he cannot, his donkey can't get through, so he walks. But he completes his research and he comes back. Only after he gets back and he has prayed about it and he's built up a strategy, does he call a meeting with the local leaders. When he calls that meeting with the local leaders, he presents them with a plan. And that plan is given to them. When he presents this strategy to the leaders, it is Eliashib, the high priest, that gets up and says, let us rise up and build. Nehemiah's presentation was received by his people as being a strategy that could work. I want us to look at that strategy. And for that reason, I want us to read, and if we can stand at the reading of the word here, it will come from Nehemiah 3, verses 1 to 5. Thanks, Adam. Nehemiah 3, verses 1 to 5, and I will do some reading, and then it's going to jump to a whole bunch of other verses wherein there is significant. Nehemiah 3, verse 1 reads, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananiel. Then Eliashib the men, and the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. Also the son of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with the bolts and bars. And next to them, Miramoth, son of Uriah, the son of Koz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Erechiah, the son of Big Words, made repairs. Next to them, Sadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Next to them, the people from Tekua made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. And I'm going to drop down to uh, somewhere around verse 16. After him, these are, every one of them is mentioned. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, uh, leader of half the district of Benzer, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David to the man-made pool and as far as the house of the mighty. After him, next to him, after him, next to him. Then we get down to verse 21. After him, Merimoth, oh, this is important. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Koz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. Then verse 
26, beyond the house, beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Then the very last verse, 32, and between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. You may be seated. Did you see the strategy? Did you catch what it was that Nehemiah told the people that was needed to be done? The incredible strategy is so very, very simple. It's absolutely simple. Build in front of your own house. Guess who would be in trouble if the gap was in front of your house? That's the strategic plan that God gave Nehemiah. Build in front of your own house. In other words, if we can extrapolate from there, that which God has called you to be responsible for, Take your responsibility. Execute your responsibility. Don't expect somebody else to take your responsibility. Did you notice that it was the nobles of Tekua that would not put their shoulder to the work? Now, I don't know. In our day, I would think that that would mean... Um, that the security detail of the nobles of Tekua uh, decided, well, either the, the city has some security detail and they're protecting us, or we have enough money to protect ourselves, we'll keep our own guards, we don't have to do this of building in front of our own house. We can take care of that ourselves. If you go and read through this, this whole piece, Chapter 3, you find that the people of Tekua went and they built a second section. They made up for the nobles of their city, their part, that did not want to put their shoulders to the work. We read that the governor himself, Nehemiah, that, the, that he built. We read that there was a man who only had daughters, and they built in front of their house. The high priest, we read that he built the portion that was assigned to him. Then there was a lot of opposition. Sanballat, Tobiah, and some Arab, can't remember his name offhand, came and tried to distract them from the focus of building the wall. Do you know what the outcome was of the, the focus that Nehemiah kept right through the whole time when even when they had to build with one hand and have a weapon in the other hand because they were threatened to be attacked. 
Nehemiah never, ever gave up the focus of what God had given him. The plan that God had given him, he implemented all the way. Do you know what the result was? We read of that in Nehemiah 6, verse 15 and 16. And this is the astonishing two verses that I always come to when I look at bad news. Verse 15, so the wall was finished in 52 days. Wow. Even the pagan nations around Jerusalem had to acknowledge one thing, just one. They had to acknowledge that God had done it. It was not of man. It was of God. The only thing that Nehemiah was, he was true to serving the God that he loved. The God of his fathers. The creator of the heavens and the earth. So that leaves us with a question. What do we do? Or how do we respond or approach bad news? when we receive it in our day. Let me ask a question. What does the Bible, the scriptures say about a young person? I said this at the graduation of our young people that were here and I'm going to say it again. I'm so glad that I don't have children that are small that have to be brought up in this day. Because these young people are facing a barrage of problems that we never faced. It is more sophisticated, it is more difficult, and it's more pervasive than it's ever been. And I don't know whether you know, church, that there is a core of young people in this church that blow me away. I've never seen the likes of them. And it's a privilege to be able to work with them. God has a plan. What does scripture say? How can a young man or a young woman keep their lives pure? Simple plan. By keeping it to your word, Lord. And that we find in Psalm 119 verse 9. That's where it is. By keeping it in accordance to your word. That's what he's given us. He's given us the entire roadmap. We don't have to go and look for it elsewhere. God has spoken. And if we're praying about things that God has already spoken of in the past, then better we don't expect an answer. He has already answered. You know, the legal term in the courts, there is a thing when uh, somebody is badgering, a, a, a lawyer is badgering a witness, the other lawyer jumps up and says, asked and answered. 
Yeah, asked and answered. That's why we have to know what's going on in here. Second Timothy 2 verse 21 sums that defines this situation to a T. It says, if you, keep, if you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean and you will be ready for the master to use you for every good work. Simple. There's nothing complicated here. There's nothing hidden here. Remember this. This comes from Ephesians 6 verse 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and principalities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We so often think that the things that I mentioned at the head of this, that these are our biggest problems. No. Our fight is not necessarily there. Yeah, do we pick up our pen and write to our senators? Do we take up our responsibility in our civil, in our civic duty? But those are not the things that are going to determine our destination. Our destination is determined by whether we keep our lives in accordance with God's word. That's it. I hesitate to tell this story. But I need to. Because this morning, when I woke up, God reminded me of something that happened here in Charlottesville. Oh, it's a number of years ago. There are some people in this audience that know exactly what happened there. An altar call was made in a church. And the message of God had cut the hearts of the people. And when the altar call was made, there were so many people coming up to the front that there were not enough prayer leaders to pray with everybody. I was sitting in the back and I saw a lady go forward. She was crying so bad that she actually walked into a row of chairs. There was nobody to pray with her, so I jumped up from the back and ran around. And I had the the privilege of praying with her. She was crying so bad, I said, what is it that I can pray for you for? What is it that you need prayer for? And she said, I'm trapped. I'm absolutely trapped. Okay. What's the problem? Well, I am in, a, in an adulterous relationship. 
The man I'm living with doesn't want me to come to church. He doesn't want me to read a Bible. He doesn't want me to pray. And I don't know what to do because there's nowhere else that I can go. I'm homeless if I leave him. What do you say to somebody like that? I'm trapped. I have no way out. No. God's word is clear. There will always be a way out. He will give a way out. I don't know where the wisdom came from. I have no idea. But I said to him, my dear, I'm going to pray for you, but it's not going to help unless you do something about your situation. And she said, what is there to do? I said, when you go home, you go and you say to this gentleman, something has changed. And that something is that unless you do right by me, there's no physical relationship from here onwards. You will say and do the things that you've promised me to do. You will do right by me. You say you love me. And I counseled with this young lady a little bit afterwards again. And she went away. I was praying for her. I was worried about her. Then a couple of weeks later, something happened that blew me away. We had a baptismal service. And there she was. She had gone home. The man had said, nope, he's not doing that. And she had taken God at his word that he would answer her and he would give a way out. She had found a job. She had found an apartment. She had found peace in her soul because she was at peace with God. She was baptized that morning. And you know what she said? She said, I cried so bad, I don't know who the gentleman was that, that prayed for me. Today she's a, she's a permanent greeter in that church. She's fulfilling a tremendous role of getting people to welcome people into the relationship with Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. That happened in Charlottesville. That did not happen somewhere on the mission field. That happened in Charlottesville. Following Christ in the plan that he has for you and for me, we can have an adventurous life. I stepped out of an engineer earning a lot of money 45 years ago, have never had a stable salary since then to today. God has never failed once.
Never. Never. That adventurous life is ready for you and for me. As we step out and we focus and we don't allow the world to distract us from the focus that we have said yes to the Lord. There are people in this audience today that have a calling on their lives, but they are scared to take the step. They are fearful or they don't think that they are capable. They don't think that they are worthy. They think that there is something in their life that disqualifies them from doing it. No. God has given us his son who can never, ever, ever be disqualified. Never. I want you, I, I really, I, I'm pleading with you. Tonight is going to be a practical, a practical application of the principle that was set here this morning, where if we follow God the way that Nehemiah followed it, we can be successful. We can be, the outside world will look in and say, wow, only God could have done that. The only problem is that God needs some warm bodies to represent him. Don't hold back. It'll only be to your detriment. The adventurous life of following Jesus is real. It's here. And it's available. I'm going to stick around some, and I'm pretty sure that Pastor Robert is going to stick around as well. If there are people that want to come for prayer in a private setting or so, please come. Tonight we will have an open altar for, for everybody. And if you feel that you want to come up to the front to come and pray, please do so. Don't hesitate. As we get ready to close, let it be this. Our greeting that God sends us out of here this morning is this. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us worship together. And please make an effort to be here tonight. It will be a practical session. It's good to be back with you again tonight. And uh, I want to thank the leadership of the church for giving me the opportunity to be with you and uh, to talk to you about something that is really heavy on my heart and something that I have for the last 45 years been able to live out. And that's what I want to share with you tonight. However, we have to do a little bit of a recap because uh, there was a sound problem on the recording this morning. So I just want to run very, very quickly over what was said this morning just in an encapsulated fashion. The idea is, what do we do? How do we react 
when bad news comes our way? We have a couple of choices. We can either go into the corner with fear, we can get angry, we can get frustrated, we can get disappointed, we can surrender, we can even wash our hands of it and say, it's not my problem, it's not my responsibility, and walk away from it. How do we handle it? Do we step into it or do we pull back from it? The bad news in the case or study that we did this morning came to Nehemiah whilst he was the cupbearer in Babylon for the king and he was in exile. And he knew that if his countenance, if his face, if he was sad in front of the king, he would get killed. Yet he was weeping, he was fasting, he was mourning over the fact that his people's graves were lying open, that the wall was down, that the doors were burnt, and that it was in a terrible state. He prays and he asks God to touch the heart of the king. When the king asks him, what do you request? His prayer is in place and he asks the king to go to allow him to go back to Jerusalem. The king goes a whole lot further, gives him the letters for the travel. He gives him even a posse to take him there, to guard him as he goes. When he gets to Jerusalem, he takes some time to do his research. We can read that in the second chapter of how he goes around the wall. He doesn't speak to the leaders to start off with. And then when he does speak to them and presents to them the findings of his research, he gives them a plan, and the high priest is the first one to get up and to say, let us rise up and build. And that's what they do. After uh, Nehemiah has given it, then we read in the third chapter, if we start in verse 1 in the third chapter, we go right to verse 32, you will see that the building of the wall was started at the fish gate, and it finished at the fish gate. The circle was complete, and each person the, was given the plan of building in front of his own house. And as I said this morning, uh, you didn't want to be the person who was living where there was a gap in the wall, because that meant that you would get attacked first. So the whole point of the plan was to secure the wall, to get the security up, and that each one took responsibility for that which is in front of them. Their responsibility directly in front of them that God had called them to. We read it and there were some people who didn't want to do that. There were the nobles of Tekua, the governor himself. Then the distractions came from Tobiah and Sanballat and from the Arab, who I still can't remember his name. The whole point is that there was a distraction. There was a, a, an offer on the table for him to do something that would distract him from doing what God called him to do. And he would not. He would not. The word is actually used by Nehemiah himself that my integrity would not allow me to do that. Because God would not allow me to do that. And the result, the entire wall 
that was said it can't be done. Even if a fox jumps against it, it will fall. The entire wall was rebuilt in 52 days. And even the pagan nations around had to come to the point of saying it was God and he got the glory for it. Question for us tonight is if we use the model of Nehemiah, how he gets the bad news, how he prays, how he processes through the whole thing, what is it that you and I have to do? Can we use this plan as we go forward here in Charlottesville in July, at the end of July of 2021? Is it possible? What would it look like? And I want to do something that is maybe unorthodox. I want to read to you a portion of scripture because I believe this is the crux of the whole matter. And if we can stand together, it's going to be from Ephesians 2. And we should all be able to quote these verses because uh, it's something that we just cannot work without. It's Ephesians 2. Verses 8 and 9 that we all basically know off by heart. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. And most of us stop there. But that's not the point. The point is verse 10. These first two verses give us exactly what our goal is as we go forward. But verse 10 tells us that the great work that God has done in our lives, he even calls it in verse 10, for, you, uh, for we are his workmanship. A different translation translates it as uh, you are God's masterpiece. He's done a masterful work in our lives by giving us our salvation through Christ Jesus. That which is mentioned in verses 8 and 9. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the little word I want to stand with and you can be seated. The little word I want to get to is you can walk in this, these good works. Now remember that these good works that he talks about here has nothing to do with our salvation. Nothing. That is a free gift from God. The good works he talks about here is those things that we are called to do so that we may further the kingdom of God that he has placed before us the instructions and the, uh, the job that he has put in front of us so that we may walk in them day by day. So many times we compartmentalize our lives that this is what happens during the week and this is what happens on Sunday. And we have it so segmented that we, we actually live a double life. That's not the way that God's word talks about it. He wants us to walk in these good works, in this faith, every single day. Now, the sound went off this morning, 
And I have to confess that somewhere along the line, I've put my notes somewhere where I can't find them. So I'm going to need my, uh, my slides up, please, if you would, so that I can just step into what we're doing. If we look at the strategy that Nehemiah set up, it is that each one will build in front of his own house. Now, that would be the individual. But now as a congregation, corporately, we have to make sure that that which we're doing is going to complete the circle. It has to start at the fish gate and it has to finish at the fish gate. Otherwise, there would be gaps in the wall and our security would be compromised. And the, that which I'm talking about tonight is just to look at the bigger uh, picture here. And it seems to me like Brother Robert has run away. I want to embarrass him. Anyway, he's, oh, there he is. Oh, no, that's Seth. Okay, not to worry. Let me tell you the story then. I came to Riverstone having been invited by a close friend of mine. And the very first time that I was here, Pastor Robert preached the sermon that I can just about repeat for you. Because it had the essence of exactly what was needed in our time. Because we are facing a whole lot of bad news. A whole lot of hardship is lying right in front of us. If we think that inflation is going, is it going to be a problem, it's going to be a problem. But I tell you, there are far worse things that are lying on our road. If you have, if you speak to somebody who has come through two different revolutions already, and they look back at what happened during those revolutions, they're going to tell you that things can get pretty dark pretty quickly. Pretty difficult pretty quickly. I'm not going to make a prediction. All I will say is I see the signs that I saw in Zimbabwe. Then it was Rhodesia. And in South Africa, which is on the brink of collapse right now. I see those same signs taking place. The beginnings of those same signs taking place here. We have a job to do. Pastor Robert preached that sermon, and I don't think he ever had anybody walk up to him after a service that he did not know from a bar of soap and said to him, Hey, tell me one thing, Pastor. How serious are you about the sermon you have just preached? His answer was fully committed. My answer to him at that point was, brother, and I want to be part of this church. That's why I'm standing here today. Because I met, I saw what Nehemiah was talking about. That people who are totally committed, pointedly focused on the things that God has called them to do. That's when the anointing of God comes in and that's when things start happening. 
I can go on about these these things, but let's just stay with with it. I want to I want to walk this road with you. I want to tell you that we as a congregation had better understand that our pastors and our leaders have got a very flat hierarchy, which is great. We don't have leaders that stand out as towers, although we do have towers here. As I said to Brother Chris some time back when I was at a, at a camp, and I, the youth were, were so phenomenal, I said to, said to them, you know, I've never been in a church or part of a church before that had a temple and a chapel right inside it. Sorry, Brother Jay, and sorry, Brother Chris. But it's true. We have a unique situation here. We do. I speak in a lot of churches over many years, over 40 years. And we have a situation that's unique in this congregation where the delegation to one and to the other and to the next makes perfect sense. Can we run through some of those? Can we get to the next slide, please? I'm going to have to put my glasses on to read those. And with these lights in my face, here we go. We have in this congregation an incredible amount of opportunities. We have Celebrate Recovery. We have a men's prayer group on Tuesday mornings. We have the journey groups, the small groups. We have a women's ministry with Sister Autumn Nims that actually has a, an international ministry next, next to it, also to women. We have the door-to-door outreaches that take place. We have the Sunday, uh, Saturday afternoon with the youth. I want to drag Hannah up here quickly. Hannah. Being as though your pastor ran away, you're, you're on the hook right now. Is this microphone on? Okay, I've got it for you. What does it mean for you on Saturday afternoons? What have you learned? Well, <laughs> um, well mostly what's been really helpful for me is um, Dr. Ricker. He, did I say that right? Yep. Um, I, we go through a lot of spiritual things, and recently we've been talking about sin and kind of how sin works in our own lives and where sin came from and like how the devil uses our own desires to get us to sin. So it's not only the devil, and it's not only our desires, but it's kind of a combination. And Dr. Ricker also has been focusing a lot on the scientific aspect, like why Christianity and science aren't two separate things. It's not either you believe in science or you believe in Christianity, but Christianity um, works well with science, and science proves it. And that's really been helpful for me because um, growing up in a public school where it's like it's evolution, evolution disproves God, it's nice to know that there is evidence for why God exists and science can be together. Thanks much. <laughs> and the lamb, the lamb has just walked in to the slaughter. <laughs> Brother Robert, you are required up on the front, please, sir. Um, 
Brother Robert, what was your reaction and your thoughts? When I just walked in? No. <laughs> when somebody walked in for the very first time into a message that you preached and walked up to you and said to you, Brother, I want to know how serious you are about what you mm. preached. Has that ever happened to you before? Not that I can recall, no. <laughs> well, it happened some months ago. It did. It did. I just want to appreciate you. Just like Nehemiah, the one thing you did and the one thing you continue doing is you did not shy away from the truth. And I want to encourage you because at the top end of our congregation, the whole idea that the truth will reign stands supreme. Let me get further. Let me go further. The point that the word of God will stand supreme hmm. is the important one. Amen. I want to thank you for that. Thank you, brother. Uh, uh, oh, you wanted the mic back. I, I wanted it back because I'm going to give you some of my time. <laughs> no, uh, no, uh, no. Just to reflect really quickly on on what uh, what he shared. I had first. I think that was the very first Sunday you were here. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that we had the teens come up and share. And afterwards, he was very serious. It wasn't just kind of a casual conversation. <laughs> he was very serious. Are you serious? Then we need to talk. And we did. And uh, we did. God has been gracious. And I really appreciate uh, your friendship and, and brotherhood and what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you much. Why do I do this? For this reason. The Great Commission has written in Acts says you will be my witness and it's the Lord Jesus that's speaking the apostles that are speaking you will be my witnesses says the Lord and that is a testimony of what happened that from Hannah is a testimony of what God is doing in our lives and if we miss if we do not see that God is working in our lives right now, then we miss the adventurous life that he promises, that he gives us, that he allows us to step into. We need to get back to that previous slide, please. There we are. We have the door-to-door -door we have the Saturday with the youth. We have the Discipleship Institute that Brother Jay leads. That's just absolutely incredibly well-researched, well-delivered, teaching us, preparing us for our works of service. Then, of course, there are the Sunday services that we are privileged to hear the Word of God clearly. There are camps that the young people came back from yesterday. And yesterday afternoon before our youth disciple-making group came in together, I asked them, what was it like? Fantastic. We are building people. I look at the barn revival and I thought, will it ever work in Virginia? Yes, it did. We have, we hear the prison ministries we hear of people that need to be visited in hospital. There are shut-ins that don't, cannot come to church. There are people on Zoom that are listening and hearing the 
the messages. Let me just get to the end of this lot. There are missions domestic. The young people are going on a missions trip. Do we all know that they're going on a missions trip? There are foreign missions that, I, that I'm part of. And then there's one in red. And it's that one that I want to talk to you about. Disciple making. We go to the next slide. We will read what the Great Commission says. It, the Great Commission is, Go ye therefore into all the world. Make disciples. Teach them. Baptize those that come to faith. And behold, I will be with you. Right there, the Lord Jesus claims his divinity. He stresses, he points out his divinity right there. Every single bit of authority has been given unto him. Why is this important when, that we look at the Great Commission? That is our, each one of us has a calling. Every single one of us has a calling. There's not one of us who are children of God that can say, I don't have a calling. Not one. There it is. If we look at it in Acts again, you will be my witnesses. All you have to do is open your mouth and tell of the great things that God has done in your life. And if you tell me God has never done anything in your life, I'm going to remind you that you have to be a little bit more focused to see it. Because it's there. Each one of us have our marching orders. Each one of us have the command to be his witnesses. Let's go to the next slide, please. And that is Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And I refer you again to verse 10. For we are his workmanship. He has done the job in us already. So that we may walk in the deeds that he calls us to do. Now, how do we do these? Next one, please. How many disciples did the Lord have again? Twelve. Do you know that he poured 80% of his time into Peter, James, and John? It was Peter, James, and John that he took to the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Peter, James, and John that he took on uh, to the uh, raising of Jairus' daughter. It was Peter, James, and John that he took to Gethsemane. It was Peter, James, and John that were called to be the inner circle. He spent a huge chunk of his time with them. The question is, whose job was it to tell the other nine? It was the job of Peter, James, and John. That's it. Because they had to be witnesses of what they saw and what they heard. And I want to show you the multiplication that takes place when this model is being used. Let me just, in parentheses, say this model has now been running for 12 years in five different countries in Africa. We now have, in the little spot that is the center of those, those there that the name of our Lord is in, that gets taken up by 
disciple makers, people who step out as disciple makers, there are 35,000 such clusters. Over a million people are being led by the very native missionaries, nationals to that country who speak the local language, who understand the local culture, and who are accepted by the local community. In the bush of Africa, in the deepest bush of Africa, we don't work in the cities. This model that the Lord Jesus laid on my heart in 2010 when I was ready to throw my hands up and say, Lord, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. And God said, do it my way. And this is what he pointed out. The Lord Jesus took Peter, James, and John. And if Peter, James, and John each had three disciples, do you know what it looks like? Can we have the next slide, please? I want to show you what happens in three, three years. That one person that starts out as the disciple maker and works with the Peter, James, and John, and then inspires the Peter, James, and John to go to the next step, to the fourth generation. Paul writes to Timothy, find faithful men, teach them to teach others. Second Timothy 2 verse 2. If you apply the four generations of disciple making to the one-on-three model, that's what you've got. That one person in this congregation produces 40, four zero disciple makers. But we have to use another principle from Scripture. And that principle from Scripture is that the Lord Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. So in our system that we use, that is called the first uh, covenant partner hour. Two people meet together. They pray together. They speak together. They build one another up. And each one of them has one hour a week where they meet, and then they have a second hour a week where they go to the next slide, please, where they go and each one of them finds the three people that they will disciple. That there grows to 40 on each side every three years, or approximately three years. You know what could happen to this church? In a three-year period, if you had three people who stepped up to the plate and became faithful, you would have not 600 members, you would have 600 disciple-makers sitting in these chairs. Remember there were 40 and each one of them has three, that's 120 from each person in a three-year period. Guys, this is, this is as simple a plan as you could ever get. The second hour is spent with your three and then we come back. And if you, in your three, get a question that cannot be answered, 
that, that you cannot answer. Guess who you go to as your first line of uh, helping you? You go to your covenant partner. And if the two of us cannot come up with the answer to the question that is being asked, can you guess where we go to? We go to our pastor. Why? Why? Because scripture gives only one job to our pastor. Just one. He is to prepare you and me for our works of service. He does not run to the hospital. He does not run to the prison. He does not run to each shut-in. He does not have to go. He cannot do it. And our pastor has the great sense of spreading that burden out so that he can do exactly what the apostle said when the Greek, Greeks came and moaned about their widows being overseen by the, the gifts that were given out. The apostles came forward and said, let's find seven deacons so that we can remain in our first job the preaching of the word, the carrying of the word. Our pastor has to be busy with the word. And we have to be busy doing the job that he has prepared us for. Guess what? We expect our pastors to do everything because they're the ones that are getting paid. Well, I have news for you. You'd better get in the car with me and we'd better drive up to Dick Sports and go and buy him a Batman suit if we want him to do the job that we're expecting of him. Because he cannot do it any other way. It is our job. And too many pastors have decided that that very high job is the one that they would like to accept and they rob us of our works of service. But this is a two-edged sword because our following Christ is going to ask for a price. It's going to ask you for two hours per week if we use this model. Can we go to the next slide, please? There are three things that we need to do. We need to equip, we need to encourage, and we need to empower these disciple makers. That is the job of your pastor. He comes to these group meetings once in a while, once in three months, once in six months, just to hear whether we have any problems. In this growth pattern here, Charlottesville is too small for Riverstone Church. We will overrun this town, this city, in a question of months, not years. Can I show you the... I'm an engineer, or I used to be. I played with numbers. Can I show you the difference between addition and multiplication. If the, if the day of Pentecost happened every single day of the year, 365 days a year, we had the 
the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people coming to Christ every single day. Not the world, just China. How long would it take to evangelize China? At 3,000 a day. Don't try and work it out. 825 years. So we have to have two miracles. Not another single baby has to be born because there are 60,000 babies born in China every day. And not a single death. We cannot do it even if 3,000 people a day come to Christ in a nation like China. But let's go to multiplication. If one person on the face of the earth, and now I'm not just talking about China, I'm talking about about five times China's population. If one person became really, really devoted and focused and he made a disciple every six months, who made a disciple every six months, who made a disciple every... So after the first six months, you have one. After the next six months... You and two. And then those start making, and now you go from, you go from two to four. Uh, my math is out. I, I can't remember it all. How long to evangelize the entire world if in every six months your Christian population doubles? The entire world population. 18 years. That's the difference between addition and multiplication. And you're multiplying in this model. I'm talking about 35,000 of those groups right now. Do you know what the net result of that is next year this time? 105,000. Not only 105,000 of those, you're talking 3 million people. Guys, we can do this. All it is going to cost, it's going to take commitment. Two hours of our time every week on top of everything else that we've got. And let me say this out loud. If, you, if we cannot find two hours a week that we can devote totally to Christ, then you are too busy and you need to do something about it. Can we go to the next slide, please? There are two serious errors that we have to guard against in this whole situation. When you love God with your heart and not with your mind, you end up loving the God of your Im imagination, not the God of Scripture. We can build a God of our religion, very simply. And the second one is this. It is possible to think that you are saved in your mind. Religiously follow the rules of the church with your will, with your decisions. 
or you can be emotionally in your emotions you can be moved by this and you will be converted to religion not to the Lord Jesus Christ this is what we've got to guard against can I give you just one more problem that I see and I don't I'm not disparaging anybody our pastors have an incredibly difficult job but in a Barna survey some years back I was shocked when I saw the survey results 35% of our pastors in the pulpit have a problem with pornography on their computers let me just ask a question on that is it possible for somebody who is not in their private light, life living a pure life to lead you and me on a path to Christ let me term it in a different way you cannot it is impossible for you to lead somebody on a spiritual journey beyond the point that you yourself have reached you can show them the way but you cannot lead them beyond the point that you yourself have reached let me wrap up what am I saying every one of us have our marching orders our calling every single one of us have the choice of what we're going to do with our lives I would urge you I would urge you to become involved become a participant in that list of stuff that was noted up there that this church offers you so that you may grow in your own faith so that you may be a witness of Jesus Christ in a manner that will bring glory to his name while while you and I rub shoulders together and we help one another scripture says as iron sharpens iron that's exactly what we've got to do we've got to learn from one another and then then this incredible incredible adventurous life that Jesus has for you and me will be realized in you in me in this church in a manner where the glory will go to God it's not a difficult situation it's a totally simple situation you have been called the question is what are you going to do with that calling what are you going to do with the talents that God has given you each one of us has to step into that because you are God's workmanship created in Christ to do the good deeds that God has pre prepared from before the earth was made he is giving you the opportunity to serve him he's giving me that opportunity and I urge each one of us to look at this and to step into a fellowship in the opportunities that this church offers 
in such a manner that God will get the glory. Thank you, Brother Chris. Amen. That, that message tonight is a landmark message for our church. And I say that because um, when this, before this church started, uh, we, we, we knew God was calling us to do something different. We didn't quite know what it was. Um, I had gotten a, gotten a hold of some material working at Advancing Native Mission. I had connected with some ministries uh, that uh, were doing this disciple-making movement. I'd never even heard of, never even knew it existed. And uh, started uh, connecting with these ministries that had this multiplication growth that Brother Johan is talking about. Guys, I'm telling you, it is real. It is absolutely real uh, what is taking place around the world. And when he tells you what's going on in Africa, it is absolutely true. And the focus, as he said, is on making disciples. And out of, the, out of making disciples, churches organically just kind of um, exist out of this emphasis, this intentional disciple making. And I told Robert, I said, Robert, wouldn't it be great if we had a church that was just so intentional about making disciples? Toby was a part of that. We got some others on board. We want to do this so bad. You know, we want to be, but we, we've heard about it, but we just know how to do it, Brother Johan. But we knew that was who we wanted to be. That was the DNA that we wanted in our church plant. We've been praying, how do we do this? How do we do this? Not really knowing how that could happen. And, and then, um, uh, then lo and behold, um, I remember the morning, the breakfast that we had with you and you were telling me, I'm like, this is it. That's it. That's it. And folks, this is how serious this moment is, is that God is reinforcing what he wants us to be as a church he, I know, I'm certain, I'm 100, if there's anything I'm 100% certain of, is that the Lord is calling us to be a disciple-making congregation, intentionally making disciples who make disciples, who make disciples. I know it for a fact. I want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to die doing this, making disciples who make disciples, because I know it's the great revival for the end times. I honestly wholeheartedly believe that the great revival for the end times is this re-emphasis of disciple making, because he is preparing a bride that he's coming to receive. And we folks, we are a part of that. We're a part of it. You are at this church, because that is what God is calling us to do. Let's go ahead and... Um, moving time into a time of worship again. But thank you for, for sharing this this evening. And uh, did it sit with you? Did, did you get it? Did it connect? Yeah, um, I'm going to ask us, we're going to go into a time of prayer. I want you to think about, can you put up the slide? Is it possible to put the slide up, the multiplication slide with the three and the three and the three and the three? Can we put that up one more time? Look at that. Look at that. I, I don't know about it. I am so burdened for those. Let me, let me back up a little bit. Bro, Brother Greg Lawson at the Barn Revival, he shared that he came to Christ. He, he knew he, um, he made a decision for Jesus. And in his testimony, he said, though, when I went to church, no one discipled me. Do you remember that? He said, no one discipled me. So he kind of slipped back into a worldly life, but he had this sort of new desire for God, but just didn't know what he needed 
to be able to make those steps to follow Jesus. He didn't have that support system. He didn't have that, that, that one person there that, that could be there to help, uh, help guide him, to disciple him, to tell him what he needs to know, and also walk with him those first few years of his, uh, his new life in Jesus. And so he kind of slipped away, but he came back, and then there was someone there who was able to walk with him and disciple him and help him to be able to follow Jesus. That's what that is. That is God saying, listen, that, that Matthew 28, go and make disciples, he's, that is, a, come, that is a, a calling for every one of us. And so as you look at that, I want you to imagine three people right now. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to put three people in your life. Maybe they are new in the faith. Maybe they've been in the faith for a while, but just are kind of walking the fence. They don't really know how to really follow Jesus because there's not somebody there to help walk with them, to support them. Think about that person that you know that the Holy Spirit is just it just stirring inside of you to share your faith with, but you're just, you're just waiting for that great opportunity or that moment to be able to share with them. Think about three people though, right now, that you could say, you know what, I could disciple them. I could walk with them for a few months. I could teach them some things they need to know. And this church is going to give you the resources you need. Right, Pastor Robert? We're going to give you the resources you need. Every single person in here is going to have the material, the resources, and the support that you need to walk with these three people. Right, Brother Johan? We're, going to, we're here, right here for you. But I want you to pray, and I want you to ask the Lord to begin to stir your heart for these three people that you can walk with. What do you think? You think you can do it? Amen. What do you think? You think you can do it? Yes. We got a city to reach, folks. Brother Johan said we can do it in three years. <laughs> we, we can do it. We can do it. Charlottesville is too small for this church. Charlottesville is too small for this church. I heard what he just said, and I believe it. Three people. Just three people. I don't care if you're young or you're old. I don't care how even, even if you're there, Brother Yohan, if I'm not mistaken, I've heard stories that people just a few weeks old in the faith are already training others how to follow Jesus with what they're being trained to do. That's how the church in China has exploded the house church movement. It can happen here. I know it. This is the great revival. This is the great revival. I'm going to answer that question. Unfortunately, I'm going to face him so he doesn't shoot. Uh-oh. My brother Ed and I have been walking a road. Our families have been walking a road. I remember the first time that we spoke. I presented this multiplication to him. I remember like a couple of moments ago his comment. Would that work? And I said, will you try it? And he said, yes. Brother Ed, tell us what has happened. Um, when I heard the model, I, I was amazed at, at the simplicity and the truth in the model in that it was modeled out by our Lord and immediately went out and started meeting with people at... Uh, one of the popular local churches in town called St. Arbucks. <laughs> because it's not very threatening to invite somebody to have coffee and talk about the big questions in life. 
and I've tried to have and meet with people that I discipled and encouraged in their faith and their walk with, with the Lord. He's being very modest. He's done a great job and one of the great advocates of the, of the model. You see right there. Thank you for being a part of Riverstone Church. I hope today's message encouraged you to take a step closer to Christ. If there is anything we can pray for or talk with you about, please visit our website at riverstonechurch.net. May the Lord bless you this week and may you walk in all of His promises and plans for your life.